listening to ESL Talk, a podcast made for English teachers by English teachers. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You are listening to ESL Talk, a podcast made for English teachers by English teachers. Here are your hosts, Daniel and Golnaz. Hello again. Welcome to episode six of ESL Talk. Hello. Um, today we want to ask you a few questions to begin. So have you ever taken time to think about how you do things in class? Or do you ever reflect or think about your approach? Does this change depending on your students? This week's episode is all about how to develop your classroom practice, both in an online space and a classroom space. We will be speaking to our special guest, Manuela, who has over 15 years of ESL teaching experience. Manuela actually reached out through hearing our podcast, so we would encourage you also to get in touch if you want to help the English teaching community. Yeah, absolutely. It's been amazing how much um, response we've had from the podcast. So thank you, everyone, for your support. Um, with Manuel today, we'll actually discuss in detail the issue of equitable classroom practices in teaching international students. And we can hopefully learn to successfully develop our own strategies for effective English teaching. So, Neil, let me ask you, how did you first think about your classroom practice? Well, to be honest, it started when I first um, began my teacher training. So um, when I was in the UK, I did a, what's called a PGC or a postgraduate um, certificate of education in secondary English education. So while I was doing this, um, there were parts of the course, parts of the training program, which talked about classroom practice, but it was never a list of you should do A, B, C, D, and E. It was more of this is something that you need to figure out. Everyone has their own um, style. Everyone has their own way of managing their classroom, um, doing things, procedures, you know, and, and how they teach essentially. So it's something that developed over time and something that needed lots of tweaking. Um, and a lot of that came from feedback. So back when I was training, I would observe a lot of my um, peers lessons. I would observe other subjects and I would also be observed myself. So from all of those observations, I got a lot of feedback, which helped me to decide how to you know, practice my uh, classes. 
Um, and then also feedback from students as well was really important. So I took all that feedback on board that helped kind of dictate my classroom practice, how I'm going to do things, uh, what works well, what doesn't work well. And then obviously I had to tweak it as well, depending on um, the classes I was teaching. So I was thinking about it initially when I was first training, but I've always been thinking about it even up till today. So Golnaz, for you, how did your training help prepare you for, um, you know, interpreting and developing a classroom practice? Well, um, at first, when I started my training, um, we were prepared for this. We uh, were taught about this, um, our classroom practice and the approach that we need to have in the classroom, the whole class management um, idea. But uh, what I can say about myself is that um, uh, during the course and during the training courses, I did not learn everything that I have learned today. So I learned a lot of things um, in my experience, in the experiment with classrooms and with uh, experiencing with teaching. A lot of things cannot be, I mean, to be just realistic, a lot of things cannot be taught to you um, during the training courses. A lot of sensitive details cannot be covered um, during those courses. And it's only when you are in the situation, when you experience with it, that you can uh, really learn, uh, okay, in these cases, I need to do this. And especially uh, with different students, um, you know, you, you can see and you can feel that you need to uh, uh, change and switch uh, from technique to technique, from approach to approach. So uh, like one way and one style does not work in the same classroom um you know, uh, it, it might work in one classroom, but it's not going to work in the other classroom. So, um, yeah, my training did prepare me for the whole, like, say, the general gist of what's going to happen, but not all the details, of course. So um, I want to ask you about uh, the role of feedback, Daniel. Uh, what role did feedback play in helping you decide your approach in the classroom? Because for me, I mean, it was... Just um, the feedback that I received from my supervisors or from my peers during, you know, the whole um, years that I was teaching, it helped me develop and like change to what I am today. How was it for you? Very much the same as what you've just said. So definitely. Um, as students, we should never underestimate the power of feedback. And as teachers, it's exactly the same. Never underestimate the power of feedback. That kind of directs and you know, signals everything that you should be doing. If something is working well and you get feedback to say that it's working well, then you can improve it. You can continue that process. If you get feedback that something's not working well, then you can refine your approach. You can improve it again and try something a different way. If we don't know something is working or isn't working, then how can we improve it? So um, as a teacher, I always ask for feedback from my students, um, if they're young students, from their parents, um, from my peers, and um, also from you know other people who aren't teachers, because we need to know how can we teach well to that audience. Um, if I'm teaching six-year-old students or 16-year-old students or 26-year-old students, my approach needs to be very different. And how do I know what my approach is going to be? Well, I have an idea, but then from feedback and speaking to the students and asking them, what did you enjoy? What works for you? Why did you like this activity? Why didn't you like this activity? That's going to help and really direct 
um, my teaching and my practice and make sure that my approach is is correct and it's going to benefit the student. It's all about, you know, meeting the goals of students. And if we can do that through having the right approach and taking their feedback on board, students are going to think, wow, the teacher actually cares about my learning and they care about what I think and they want to improve the lessons for me. So I think it's a really powerful tool that we shouldn't underestimate um, and a tool that we should always refer back to to keep improving our practice because every class is different and every student is different and well exactly i i couldn't agree with you more and i want to also ask you this um is your approach the same now as it was 10 years ago considering no. <laughs> everything that has i mean uh, i mean the whole development that you've had absolutely not um Initially, I thought, okay, if I plan and I do a really good lesson plan that's structured, I have all the activities and the timing, it's going to be perfect. Um, I soon learned that that wasn't the case because you can plan really well and it can help. Obviously, you know, a good plan really helps, but you need to know your learners. What's my learner's ability? What are my learner's um, skills? What are they good at? What aren't they good at? How many students do I have? If I have a class of 20 students and a class of 30 students, that's going to really change my practice and my approach. So it's more about getting on board with your learners, knowing what they're able to do, what they're not able to do, um, pushing certain learners, um, stretching other learners, um, supporting other learners. So you have so many different roles to play, and it's kind of like a juggling act when you're in the classroom. It doesn't matter if you have one student, two students, 30 students. You have to know how can I be effective for all my students and how can I change things and tailor things and, you know, tweak things for that audience. It's kind of like, I don't want to say you're like um, telling a story, but you're kind of are, your lesson is a story. And it's how do I get you interested in my story? How do I get you to engage with my story? How do I get you to respond to my story in your own way? So absolutely my approach to feedback changed. Um, and now more than ever, I realize how important it is. Without feedback, you're kind of going in blind and you can't really plan or deliver the best lessons without good feedback. So enough about feedback for me, but um, going back to the students a little bit, um, Golden, as for you, how did the students in your classroom influence your approach towards them? Well, I could say the 90% of my approach is built on uh, my students, has been built on my students all the time. And it has changed. Uh, I mean, it has had to change all the time. Mm -hmm. um, something that uh, I was uh, thinking about was, um, you know, when you are doing your CELTA, the first thing before you enter the classroom and before you start uh, planning your lessons, the first thing that they ask you to do is creating the class profile. So... Why do they do this? Because mainly everything depends on the students and who you are going to teach. So um, how you want to plan and what kind of approach you want to have in the classroom, let's say uh, theoretically and psychologically, depends on the students. So um, it, it is, you know, it, it's not something that we can like, uh, it is a fact that we cannot deny. So um, for me also, it has been naturally uh, the same way. My students have influenced my approach very much. Like the approach that I had in Turkey uh, was totally different from the approach that I had in Iran, for example, in many different ways. Uh, it was because of the students, but it was also because of the new things that I was learning. So 
yeah, I could say that the main core of a teacher's approach should be the students and who we are like dealing with and who we are working with. They are the main focus of everything for us in the classroom. Yes, a hundred percent, definitely. And I, again, I can definitely agree because, you know, I've taught in South Korea where I didn't speak the language initially. I didn't know the culture that well. I was in a new environment and my approach and my classroom management skills changed and developed so quickly compared to when I was in the UK and I was working with more domestic students where we were comfortable speaking in English and we could com communicate ideas very easily. So my approach was different for that. And now working with adults in Canada, some domestic and some um, international, I kind of had a blended approach. So I've got to take both of those things and put them together to be you know, more efficient and more effective for everybody. So I guess that kind of ties into my, um, I wouldn't say my teaching style, kind of my teaching style, but um, it's kind of linking into one more question that I have for you. So do you think it's better in the classroom to be strict or to be relaxed or both? Because I guess teaching adults, it can be a little bit difficult to know how to, how to manage this. So what do you think? Well, never too strict because, I mean, not, not, not just when you're teaching, I mean... Uh, <laughs> this is my approach in life and never too strict because it's, it just wears you out and wears others out. But like you need to have, um, you need to be determined in what you are doing, what you need to do. And you need to have authority in the classroom by authority. I don't mean the traditional, you know, style and approach to teaching that, okay, teacher is the boss and the uh, students should obey. no, not nothing like that, but but by authority, I want to say that in the classroom, um, the teacher is in charge of certain things that the students are not. This should be clear in the classroom and in your approach, and the students should feel this that okay, the teacher is in charge of these things, and I am in charge and accountable for these kinds of things. So. Um, it's, I could say, a kind of a mixture between relaxed, friendly, of course, and also a little bit authority because it's just necessary. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think for sure you have to maintain and strike that balance depending on your um, your audience and who your students are. I think for younger students, um, not necessarily strict, but just to be more firm and just kind of realize that we're here to learn. We can have fun. We can enjoy it. But we need to... You know, we need to make sure that we achieve the goals of the lesson um, for maybe, you know, teenagers or students who are a little bit older. You can be a little bit more relaxed. You can try to talk to them and to, you know, get to know a little bit more about them because that way they can really feel like, you know, you're on their side and you're invested in them. And that will definitely reap, reap rewards for you when you're teaching them. And then as for adults, um, it's all about, you know, reminding adults that they need to be responsible for their own learning and you'll support them and guide them. You'll give them the tools and what they need to be successful. But ultimately, it's up to them to put it all into practice. So it does depend a little bit on that. Um, but this kind of leads me into one more question, which is about, you know, the approach in the classroom or online. So first, goal, as I'll ask you, um, what's your approach, um, you know, being on the classroom and being online? What do you think would be the differences? Well, with the pandemic and with the whole, um, uh, you know, abrupt switch that we had to online classrooms, um, we could see that a lot of different things that we could do and we could have 
uh, in the classroom face-to-face could not happen online. So this is a fact. And because of this, uh, because of the whole um, different system and because of the whole different presentation that you have during the class, uh, during uh, teaching, um, it necessitates you to have a different approach when you are teaching online as well. So for me, um, it was that uh, the first thing that I was really, uh, I, I had to kind of, um, you know, be flexible about and try to change was the fact that I could not have my students be engaged enough as they were uh, when we had a face-to-face classroom. Uh, well, the first reason was because, um, you know, the whole change was very, um, you know, abrupt and uh, nobody was expecting it. So, you know, the students were kind of forced to, um, um, you know, th- th- there was no other option for us. We could not continue face to face. But rather than that, um, you know, the whole monitoring thing, you cannot monitor everything like you can do in the classroom. And you cannot, for me, not being able to monitor well meant not being able to give feedback well. And mm-hmm. and, and and eventually not being able to um, keep my students focused on where it should be focused. So this was a really challenging thing for me. And uh, I really had to, you know, develop new skills and um, try to adapt to this because it, it was really difficult. And I cannot say that I perfectly mastered it, um, but I I could learn a lot. I mean, I, I learned a lot that yeah, online, the whole online world is, I mean, the whole online teaching world is a totally different world. <laughs> right, right. But you you uh, tell us about your experience with this, Daniel. Yeah, luckily, I've been teaching online for a few years prior to the whole COVID situation that's happening at the moment. So I kind of have a little bit of experience, but I remember my first online lesson, I was terrified because, again, in a classroom, I kind of feel comfortable. It's my safe space. Even though I have 20 or 30 students, I feel like, well, I'm in control. We know we know the dynamic. I've practiced. I've done this many times, so it's okay. But online, as I mentioned earlier, you can't really you know, develop an approach because you're going in blind, um, especially the first time. So I always think teaching online, online classes, it's always really nice to have a couple of minutes, one or two minutes at the beginning to just kind of ask your student how they're doing, how's their day. You know, how was the homework? How was the class? If there's anything interesting that happened, just to kind of break the ice, first of all. And then always online, it's great if you can have a student with their camera on, not, you know, for not to kind of monitor them and make sure they're doing the work, but more just to respond again. If I can see someone on the other side, then I can respond to them. If they look puzzled, I can ask them if they have a question, I can explain something again. If they're laughing or smiling, then that hopefully means they're enjoying the material, they're enjoying the class. Um, So it is a little bit difficult sometimes when I have students who can't or won't turn their cameras on, and there's lots of reasons for that. So I understand it's not always possible. Um, But in the online classroom, I think the approach is again, be yourself. You can be a little bit more human. You can have a little bit more fun and you can kind of use technology to your advantage. Um, I've used a lot of different tools for online teaching, um, Skype, Zoom, Teams, these kind of things, and they all have their benefits and drawbacks. And I guess, you know, I might 
if I was to give some advice to other English teachers, it might just be find a tool that works for you. The majority of people seem to like Zoom, which I can understand. It's pretty user friendly and it's good for students. So um, that could be a good way to do that. But within that, build an approach. So don't just share a screen with a blank document and type on it. You know, that's not really engaging. Maybe just have a slide or a couple of slides or design something a little bit more attractive for the students to see so that when you're working, they're at least a little bit more engaged. There's some stuff that's prepared. So if you can do that, that will help uh, definitely. And then try to get your students involved when you're teaching online as much as possible. Um, in the classroom, it's a lot easier, but online, you might not have much of a chance to do that. So every few minutes and maybe after every um, five or 10 minutes, a quick uh, knowledge check, a quick um, you know, RCQ, just to make sure they're still engaged. Um, you know, maybe go over, review something, ask them to summarize information or to give a definition of something, or maybe just to reflect on what they've done, a short writing task even, just so that they're, they're still feeling involved and they're still able to respond um, as much as possible. I think that's a really nice way to approach the online learning classroom. Okay, thank you, Daniel. That was perfect advice. I'm sure all of us will be using this in our classroom. Now we are ready for the interview portion of our episode today. Today with us, we have Manuela, our special guest. So stay tuned as we are going to interview her. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hi everyone, welcome to the next part of today's podcast, which is the interview section. Uh, today we have Manuela joining us. Hello Manuela, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you both for having me. Yeah, thank you. It's great to have one of our listeners actually uh, get in contact and request to be on the show. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, so just for our Absolutely. listeners, Manuela, a little bit about you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your early life, and what led you to teach English? Sure. Um, I grew up in a bilingual, bicultural home. So at some early age, I, I feel like I knew that I was different from my other peers, particularly my peers in school. Uh, I knew that the linguistic and cultural dynamic going on at home was different and unlike that of most of my peers. And I was always just really drawn to language and culture. I just always had a fascination with language and, and how it and how it works. Um and I always all fascinated with cultural differences as well. This was always very appealing to me. And I always think if, if I didn't go into ESL teaching, I would probably have gone into something like anthropology because I'm always just fascinated with culture. So that was just, you know, some of my early background. But I, in leading it to, in leading this to teaching, I think that, you know, the world of ESL, I was very well aware that it would allow me to meet students from all over the world and learn about their culture, their languages. And uh, this is a, a big part of what attracted me to the field. And I always say that, you know, even though my students, I have to say, I think that ESL students are probably the most gracious and, and the best that you can have. Um, they're always so appreciative. And even when they thank me for my teaching at the end of a semester or the end of a course, uh, I always just kind of, kind of go right back and say, well, I learned just as much from you as you did for me. So uh, right. it's it's really an even language exchange. And I started teaching in intensive English programs when I started out as a teacher after getting my master's degree. And that kind of, you know, going from intensive English programs, that kind of morphed into other higher ed positions, including the one that, that I'm in now. Beautiful. Um, just the things that you uh, shared about like the feelings that you get as a teacher, as an ESL teacher, I'm sure we all share that feeling. And it's just a one of a kind feeling, um, to be honest. So, uh, Manuela, uh, you're working professionally as an ESL specialist. Uh, would you want to explain a little bit more about what exactly an ESL specialist does? Sure. Well, my role is very much a support role. So um, in the institution of higher ed that I work, we don't have a curriculum that is designed specifically for intensive English programs. We don't have courses for credit that are bridge programs for ESL students. And that's mainly because the TOEFL requirement that we, it's, it's above a 90. So 
obviously at that level, they've established quite a high level of English language proficiency. So we don't have particular courses for credits just for ESL students. So my role in, in the work that I do in the Academic Support Center um, as the specialist, so I work a lot one-on-one with students and just trying to um, help, whether it's domestic or international students, managing reading assignments, so giving them reading strategies to make the volume of reading and the complexity of reading just more digestible, and also helping them through complex writing assignments and really anything they need support on. Sometimes my role also has to do with advocacy, so to advocate for different needs that ESL students might have and training. So um, in the center that I work in, we also have a tutoring center and a writing center. So part of my role is also to work with trainings for the writing tutors that work with native speaking uh, students on their writing, but also with ESL students that come in and giving them tips and offering trainings for them how they can best support ESL writers. That's a, that's a great answer to any uh, language school or um, educational community, I guess. Um, that's perfect. Um, and about your um, what, what you have studied, you have completed an MA in Applied Linguistics, TESOL. This is the same as Daniel. I want to know, how did this help you refine your classroom approach? Well, I think that it's, you know, it, it helped me build a foundation, a stronger foundation in areas like grammar, pronunciation, reading, right? All the skill areas where I think maybe if I hadn't had that solid background, maybe I could have developed some expertise in one of the skill areas that I was maybe most interested in or felt most comfortable. But I, I feel like it helped me be more well-rounded in terms of all the skill areas. In addition to that, I got, you know, practicum experiences out of it that, allowed me to, to focus on the importance of, you know, student-centered learning rather than teacher-directed learning. Um, concepts like scope and sequence were introduced, and that really, that really helped me in the classroom to determine, you know, you're not just teaching ad hoc. You really want to start off with a strong scope and build a sequence out of that. So I, I think that's really how it helped prepare me to, to be a, a good teacher. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I can speak to that as well, having done a very similar uh, educational um, degree as well, that the confidence is the huge, this is probably the biggest asset that's going to help you to be successful and help your students the most. Because I think when you don't quite have those little bits of knowledge or the little, you know, the, the full confidence to say, yep, I'm 100% certain this is how you, you know, tackle this problem or how you answer this question. Um, having that confidence makes a huge difference. So obviously, and, and you know, I want to say that there are, the I'm moment. sure there are teachers. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, there are, I'm sorry. There, I'm sure there are teachers out there that, you know, don't, maybe don't have that background and it doesn't mean they're not, they're not great teachers. They may be they may be awesome teachers. They could be. But I think it just helped me, um, again, put that theory into practice. Um, and, you know, it's it helps to build that foundation, like I said. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, you're doing a lot of different things right now. You're wearing a lot of different hats. So how would you describe your classroom approach right now? Is it different for online than face-to-face -face lessons? Or are there a lot of parallels and similarities there? Yeah, uh, I think like everyone else, I've been thrown into this world of uh, trying to learn how to do things uh, online, you know, this abrupt shift to online learning back in the spring. So I, I really have had to adapt to that just like everyone else. Um, so if trying to find different technologies to help even my one-on-one -on -one session, uh, sessions be 
you know, just fluid, very different, not having that in-person energy. So I've had to adapt to that and also having to think about how could my sessions be help students in being active participants and not just passive learners while I'm working with them one-on-one. A lot of my work involves reviewing papers, academic papers, looking at, you know, academic vocabulary used in papers and how do we build on that vocabulary. That tends to be a really common goal for students that I work with. Um, so again, without that, that energy that you have in person, this, this, the online platform can be a challenge, but We've worked on things like using even just something as simple as using the OneDrive to learn vocabulary and context, extracting some of the vocabulary from their papers and putting it into a OneDrive shared doc that we can look at the, look at it together in context and have the student build on that during the next session. So that's that's one way that I've, I've done this online. But um, my classroom approach is often in general, just trying to have it be as interactive as possible, because I'm a very big believer in just the whole learning science behind the more active your participants in class can be, the the more they're going to learn and retain over time, as opposed to just, you know, sitting there and watching me give a a grammar lesson, uh, the more involved I can get them, the better. Great. Um, I want to ask you this question for our audience who specifically work with children. Um, I want to know, is your approach any different when teaching children as compared to adults? So I, I, I have to say, I've only taught children for a short time. Most of my career, I've been working with adults. But I think I would have to say because you can't really talk about language with the children. You can't talk about clauses and and how, you know, pronouns and antecedents. And this is just, this is language that you use your, with your ESL students. And oftentimes they've often studied uh, English long enough that they know a lot of the jargons that have to do with grammar and language. But so obviously that's different when it comes to children. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you try to make it as interactive as possible. That's so applicable when thinking about working with children because you have to make sure everything's around a game. But again, keeping it with the goal so that it's not just about them having fun and playing a game. There's also there also needs to be a goal in place. So I guess with kids, my approach has been that way for, for the short time that I did teach children is keeping that interactive, keeping it fun for them with, you know, they're, you know, you're making this indirect, right? You're not letting them know that they're learning language, but you are introducing different interactive games to help them maintain attention, but also to help build their language skills. Wonderful. Yeah. That's, it's great to hear your approach and all these little things that maybe we wouldn't even think about, you know, just putting those into the mix can definitely make a huge difference. So thank you for sharing those insights. Um, so the next question is kind of related to what we just said, but more in terms of um, domestic, international, so native and non-native uh, students. So how is your approach different when dealing with um, domestic students and international students like you do at the moment? Yeah, so this is where I, I rely on thinking about BICs versus CALPs. So the BICs being the basic interpersonal communication skills and the CALPs, the cognitive academic language proficiency skills. Aren't we so glad we have acronyms? Because <laughs> those are a mouthful. Um, so when I think about that, so for some of my students who have the BICs in place, so they may need a little more instruction when it comes to discourse differences. And where I see in my big students, they tend to be students that they sound, sometimes even sound like native speakers. And sometimes their professors may say to me, oh, I didn't even know that student was, um, that their first language was not English. I had no idea. 
because in, in class, they're real competent communicators in terms of their expressive language and class participation. But then when it came to the writing, um, that's where I need to spend some time with them and say, you know, there, there are discourse differences. So when you're speaking in class versus with your peers, just having conversation, you know, verbally, orally, that is very different than what should appear on your paper. So that's where I spend some time in discussing those differences in discourse with the BIC students. So for the students that, you know, on the opposite end of that, there's, like I said, the CALP. So they, these may be my international students who haven't spent as much time in the host environment with the target language, right? So they may approach their pragmatics, their social interactions a little more more formally than they should and trying to get them to understand that those conventions also differ and, and even some of the, the cultural and again, the social bits that go along with that. Like they'll say to me, I don't understand why people pass by and say, hi, how's it going? How are you doing? And they just keep walking and they I haven't even answered their question. So this is yeah, this is sort of weird to to students that are not used to being in the environment. So of course I have to explain some of those pragmatic differences that occur um, with our social conventions. Awesome. And um, having all of these students from all walks of life and uh, with different learning styles and everything, how do you ensure equity in the classroom? Why is this important? So in ensuring equity, um, I think in my particular role right now, since, again, I, I'm not necessarily teaching courses, I'm more in a specialist role, um, my position in ensuring equity has to do really with even faculty interaction and reaching out to faculty. So one of the things I've done in the past has been to, to run uh, workshops and evaluating English as a second language writing. So this is often a hot topic, as you can imagine. So, you know, when professors approach uh, evaluating writing, they might look at a student's paper. You know, they might want to equate this and say, well, I should look at my students. I should use the same rubric for all my students. So this is where equity comes in. And you know, I've run workshops to talk about making sure that you look at these papers very differently. You know, your rubric should be different. Um, you should be focusing on, you know, top down, look at content, look at structure. Let's, you know, think twice when you're evaluating things like vocabulary, mechanics, um, grammar, of course. So these are some of the conversations that I've had. This is where my role plays in, in terms of equity and, and helping faculty think about equitable practice in their classroom and working with non-native speakers and also being careful of assumptions. These are also conversations I've had um, with faculty. And, you know, when you're teaching a topic that's really heavy on, you know, a, having a historical context or a political context, this does not translate, you know, across every culture. So if you're teaching you know, a very homogenous group, and it's all Americans. Well, if you're know, talking about something like the Declaration of Independence, that may be a topic that's familiar to all your students. But in, in thinking about students that are in your classroom, where this is not a familiar, you know, historical topic for them, just building some schema into that, making sure that they have added resources that they can refer to before even tackling assignments in which they're, they're not as familiar with, again, the historical or the political contexts. Yeah, definitely. Some Again, some great advice for teachers old and new. And definitely, it's great that you've identified that we can't treat students the same way, that we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach, which 
so many institutions follow for simplicity, but it's not the way. So it's really refreshing to hear that as well. Um, we've kind of covered a little bit about teaching students about equity and cultural differences. So let's move it on and let's discuss specifically about equitable practices in the classroom. What do they look like? How would a student know that they're learning about equitable, equitable practices or how would a teacher know to incorporate it into their classroom? Um, one thing I always say is, you know, think about, um, you know, just to start even, like know if your faculty member, know who your students are. Like it doesn't take much to just survey your students at the beginning of a semester and find out, are there any non-native English speakers in your class? Are there any international students in your classroom? And, and that may drive topic selection. You know, you can adapt your topic selection to who your audience is. And don't we always say that when we're talking even about writing, we say, you know, know your audience, know your purpose. Well, Absolutely. I think the same applies for, for faculty. Make sure you know who is in your, so it starts there. Who are your students? And then how will you go about selecting your topics? Providing examples of successful assignments. So if you're expecting, if you're looking at a rubric and you're thinking about an A, you know, offer students in terms of equitable, equitable practice, offer your ESL students some kind of sample in terms of this is what an A paper looks like, this is a B, C, et cetera. Um, and also having conversations around academic integrity, which is also a hot topic that does not transfer cross-culturally. You know, sometimes there are assumptions that, you know, a student, an international student may have plagiarized. And I, I get those questions a lot. You know, um, did the student plagiarize? Is this a form of plagiarism when, in fact, um, academic integrity is not treated the same cross-culturally and students need a little more instruction around that. So I want to ask you um, another question about uh, keeping up to date as this is a key element to professional development and also to uh, ensuring the um, quality of uh, learners learning. How do you keep up to date with new theories of classroom practice and do you ever change your practice? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things I do is I belong to a TESOL affiliate group in my region. And so anything that comes out of there, obviously, is subscribing to that, attending conferences that they put on in my local area. Um, that's really helpful. Um, you know, I also keep informed in terms of what's going on in learning science. There's different YouTube channels that uh, just to kind of change it up so that I'm not always reading articles, just even going to a video that has to do with learning science. And, you know, one of the topics that I've been looking at is spacing and retrieval of information so that students can retain information better. So that's not necessarily specific to ESL practice. That's that's learning in general, but it's certainly applicable to ESL practice and language learning. So these are some of the things I do. I also, you know, I'm fortunate to work with a group of colleagues who are always very kind to send uh, resources my way. And so that's one way I stay current. And sure, if, if there are practices that are embedded in, in some of that, I, I will change my practice and just think about even when we're talking about vocabulary, for example, earlier, like how can I maybe, you know, doing a Padlet, this is one, something I've done differently recently because of the shift to online learning, you know, doing word banks and Padlet versus just, you know, keeping a log of vocabulary, let's say, if we're using that as an example. So, so sure, uh, that, that, does, that does help me to, to change some of my practices as well. That's great. Yeah, I, I think as teachers, we should always be lifelong learners and we should practice what we preach, right? We always tell our students to stay up to date, be relevant, read in their subject area and do lots of, you know, um, improvement in their own personal development. So yeah, absolutely. We should definitely do the same, Manuela. So obviously at ESL Talk, we're 
here to try to help existing teachers, new ESL teachers. So what advice and suggestions could you give to new or existing teachers on how to develop and promote an enjoyable and equitable classroom environment? What does a perfect harmonious classroom look like to you? One that is where the instructor can be flexible. You know, I think we, we, we get that rigidity starting early on where we think, okay, I have all these goals I want to accomplish and objectives associated with those. And, you know, we, we want to, we, we think that successful means accomplishing all of those and checking those boxes, but really it's letting go of that rigidity and being flexible, adapting to the students. That's why I always say student-centered, not teacher-directed. How your student like work more at their pace. And also, I'm a big believer in also surveying your students. This is something that we do often and even in my role in different capacities, you know, ask the students what they want. When we think about even, you know, how does the world operate in terms of, you know, commercial commerce, et cetera, we're always asking, what does the customer want? That's We have to think about it that way too. What are some of the areas that the students want to focus on? Because if you can, if you can motivate them, by what it is that they're interested in, you're more likely to have successful lessons because they're invested in what it is that they're most interested in, right? So they ca- that can help drive instruction and help drive, once again, your scope and sequence and being able to adapt to that. Perfect. And what about those who are wanting to teach English, but, you know, are not sure how to approach it? What would be one tip you would give them? Um, I always say, like, just observe, you know, if there's always something you're interested in, observe, like ask someone, reach out to even a community program if you can, or if there's someone you know in, in, an, in an academic setting that you're interested in, reach out, observe and see what that's really like to get a taste of it, um, to see if it's if it's a good fit. And, you know, like I said earlier, it, it doesn't always mean going into a graduate program and getting your 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 master's degree in, in ling- applied linguistics. It, it might mean, you know, first start out, you know, start doing some online teaching, see how that goes. You can do it on a one on one basis. Do it for there's there's so many opportunities. You could do it one on one. You could do it in group. There's so many opportunities There's so many settings you can be in and just figure out what's right for you. See what others are doing. Form a community. That's what I think is really important too. This is even an example here of just, you know, um, finding out about something new and what are people doing out there? Stay current and stay connected. 100% true. Exactly. Dipping your toes in the water and, you know, just starting with the experiment, experiencing it is just um, the best teacher of all, I guess. Thank you so much, Manuela, uh, for sharing your unique insights on how to promote equitable practices for the students. I personally learned a lot. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Thank Manuela. you both so much. really appreciate it. Nice to meet you both. Good luck with the podcast and I'll be continuing to tune in. Thank awesome. you. Thank you so much. Great. So if you'd like to share your experiences or get involved in the podcast, feel free to get in touch at esltalkpodcast at gmail.com. Or as always, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And thank you everyone for the wonderful support so far. We continue to grow and increase our listenership each week. And we thank you for listening. We'll see you next week, guys. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe for new episodes and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for even more ESL teaching content. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe for even more ESL teaching content.